How many guys could quote to me Romans 8, 28? How many guys can quote that verse? For we know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's one of those verses that is probably in most of our, our, holder, our, our you know, holsters that we've got to pull out from time to time when you do life. You know, you don't use every Bible verse that way, but boy, that one, you've got to have that one close by. You know, there's going to be a moment where you're going to have to use that baby, right? But the problem is that, that verse is not just a set of words. Those words mean something. They're set in a context And sometimes they just become words to us. And they weigh a few ounces. And what I hope today will do for us is it'll make those verses weigh a few tons. That when we pull those words out, they will be weighty, serious, effective, impacting, world-shaping words for us. That in any moment, I could take those verses out and just flash that badge in the face of that situation. And those words are weighty. No matter how weighty that thing is, these words are weighty words. Now we've been studying the impact of the Reformation uh, through October. And we're going to do that for the remainder of November this week and next week. This moment in history, it wasn't really a moment. We've turned it into 1517. But it really was a couple hundred years leading up to it and a few hundred years after that as well and we're still experiencing reformation but there were some things that were imparted into the church and they were reminders there were moments in which the reformers stood before the people of God and said have we lost this have we misplaced some truths that that should be shaping us because they're just what the bible says and what we get today and when we use the term reformed theology Reformation theology. What on earth is up? Okay. That's not the same as whatever that is. Thank you for confusing me. It's still not the same. What you guys trying to do to me, man? All right. Well, there's this thing called Reformation theology. We are a church that believes in Reformed theology without apology. That is the centerpiece of how we see and understand the scriptures. We believe the scriptures teach something that the Reformation needed to re-advertise. It needed to open up again and make clear to us. And so today I want to visit that dimension. Because one of the ripples of the Reformation from 1517 on was the impact of drawing our attention back to these particular truths. So today we're going to look at Reformed theology. Let me put up a a, a crazy illustration here. It's in your notes already. All of us believe that we're living some kind of a journey, right? Life is a journey. You hear these kinds of phrases. So if life's a journey, it's got a starting point and it's got a destination. You can say that's true for humanity. Humanity has a starting point. Humanity has a destination. But, you know, humanity is just the sum of a bunch of parts, So what's true for humanity, it's true for each of us individually as well. So we have a starting point and we have a destination as well. Now the question for us is, 
what is moving us towards this destination? There's a destiny for man somewhere in the future. Well, there's this battle, if you will. Even when we read the scriptures, you're going to see it. And you and I experience it when we try to think through, how are we going to get from here to there? Well, there's these two wills that are involved. And so today I'm titling this message, Reformation Theology and the Battle of the Two Wills. There's this thing called the will of God that we read about in Scripture. And then there's this thing that you and I are very aware of called human will. And sometimes what we add to human will is the term free. Human free will. And so we use this to understand tomorrow is going to be made up of what? In your life. In the future of humanity. In the destiny of our existence. Some kind of blend, battle, issue of our will. God's will. How do these things get worked out? Well, here's what, here's what we know. When we read the Bible, that dark line represents something that we're going to learn about today called God's purpose. And God's purpose has its origins in the foundation of the world. I'm giving you a preview of where these scriptures are going to take us in a moment. They're not created today. They're not a reaction of God. Right? You're going to go off and do something today. And some of us have a theology that says, and then God's going to react to whatever we do, and then he'll step in and do something, and then we're going to do something, and then he's going to react. But the Bible teaches that God has a purpose that begins at the foundation of the world. So before the world even gets moving on any kind of a course, God already has a purpose that he fully knows. And his purpose is that the destiny of man is going to end in Revelation. And I've chosen Revelation 21, even though there's 22 chapters in Revelation. Because there's a day in Revelation 21 where a new heaven and a new earth, the new Jerusalem is going to be lowered down out of heaven. And this throne of God is going to include an audience of men and women and children from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And they're going to be standing before the Lord of glory. And there's this scene of judgment that's awaiting. There's this scene of those who are with God receiving glorious blessing and being ushered in to this day where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. And God holds that out to us like absolutely going to happen exactly the way I purposed it to happen. That's how the Bible reads. And it gets a little hard to stay with it because it seems to not be moving in a straight line, right? And and for some reason, what you and I do is when we bump into a a non-straight line, it confuses us. We We are totally linear thinkers. If this thing turns to the left or the right a little bit, we assume it's off course, right? Because if God said we're going to land right there, then, well, it ought to just be a straight line right there. And there shouldn't be the fall and all the difficulties and problems that come in. So we begin to wrestle with, how does that happen? Well, man's free will. That's how that happens. So then we're left with, well, what's going to determine the end and the outcome here? Are we just going to drift off into one of these dotted lines and land in a question mark? We're not going to make it to Revelation 21. It's going to end different than that. Because 
Who knows what man will decide? See, the Bible's pretty clear about what God decides, but you and I are pretty fickle and weird. I don't know what I'm going to decide this week. I think I know, but I don't know. And you don't know. You don't know what you're going to do 10 years from now. You don't know how you're going to feel when life changes and you got bankruptcy or you got a cancer or you got a situation or somebody becomes against you or something physiological changes inside. You don't know. How can you guarantee if your will is being exercised on a daily basis that you'll ever end up in Revelation 21? You could end up anywhere if in this battle of the wills, the human will is what's determinative. So what Reformed theology does is it recaptures, and and this was a centerpiece of, of this whole debate between the church in that day and the Reformers. Because what the church in that day was teaching was that because justification was an ongoing process dependent upon your will, you could never be sure whether you'd end up in that place. And for you to say that you were sure, you were pronounced by the Council of Trent, you were pronounced anathema. You were anathematized. If you said for sure that you knew in the end you were going to be in heaven, fully justified, standing before God. You are pronounced, you can't know that. Because why? Well, because you don't know where you're going to land until you get there. Because your will is involved. Reformed theology said, you know, that's, that's not where the Bible locates the center of things. The Bible locates the center of things in God. That ultimately we can have assurance because God's will is involved, even though our weird will is involved as well. So I'm not saying we don't have a will. I'm not saying that our will doesn't matter. I'm saying at the end of the day, you arrive in Revelation 21, as you'll see today, because of God's will in this battle of the two wills. So let me give us some sober thoughts here over this battle between man's free will, not a good use of terms, by the way, and God's will. Some questions, I put them in your outline there. What is the highest and ultimate cause in all of creation and human history? What receives the praise and the glory for all that is praiseworthy and good and and redemptive when we get to the end of time? Just read your Bible carefully and listen for the applause of human will. Just listen for it. It'll be deafening. The silence of it will be deafening. The creation is going to applaud something, but it's not going to be anybody's will. It's going to be God's will. What is the highest determinative influence or force in the future of humanity's condition and outcome and in the daily spaces of our lives? Be careful how you think about destiny. Somehow we get lost in this idea there's this destiny. Well, you know, it's going to work out in the end, but along the way it's going to be off course and not God's will all over the place. Okay, that, those two things can't go together. For God to assure you of the end, he has to be able to assure you of the process. If he's unfamiliar with the process, not sure about the process, going to get surprised in the process, then he cannot guarantee the end. What rules the boundaries of good and evil? Providentially governing and determining the daily and personal extent or limitations and the final end of each of them. Maybe the devil's will. 
Some people believe that. Which of these is revealed and praised as determined from Scripture? Which of these provides any ability for us to take shelter in and have hope? Right When you bump into the sovereign will and purpose of God, the way it gets presented to us, it's, it's, it runs toward a people whose countenance usually is down. They're questioning, they're pondering, they're discouraged. They don't think it's going to work out. That's when this teaching in the Bible comes rushing in. It's intended to provide hope. It's intended to speak to us when we have lost sight of something. For God to say, hey, I'm at work in ways that you may not fully get. But lift up your gaze and look. That's why it's coming to you. Imagine if God rushed in in those moments and said, listen, Keith, you're, you're going to pull it together. I know you are. You're going to sum up every ounce of wisdom and thought you've ever had. And I know you're going to do the right thing, Keith. That's what's going to make the difference in your future. How do you guys know yourself well enough that if that's what came rushing in in your moment of desperation, go ahead and slip my wrist? Because I've had front row seats my whole life from my will. I don't want my future bound to my will. I know what I'm capable of. There's no shelter for me there. But the Bible seems like it's offering me a shelter when it brings this topic up. If free will is ultimate, well then what's to prevent every human being from saying no to God? No. To anything you've done redemptive. No. To you ruling over us. No. To you being our God. No. To us gladly submitting ourselves to your lordship and your ownership. No. To the destiny that you offer us. No. I want life my way on my terms. I'd rather serve the devil. What's to keep every human being from doing that? And then when we get to Revelation 21. Who's there? Anybody? This audience that God says is going to be gathered around the throne of God, bringing glory to God, worshiping Him affectionately. Is that really going to happen? Or does the Bible write it that way like, well, this is what God hopes is going to happen. I mean, He's, he's really he's crossing His fingers. But, you know, He doesn't know either. But, you know, it's His best intent. Well, the odds are, Keith, I mean, come on. What are the odds that everybody would say no? Well, it does say people from every tribe and nation and tongue. But maybe what he really means is most tribes and nations and tongues. Right? Because who can really say for sure? I mean, is that scene in Revelation 21 guaranteed? Or is it just possible? Because human will is involved, Keith, after all. And, and we could just all tell God, hit the road. How many of you guys recognize you have lived a portion of your life telling God, hit the road? If you don't know that about yourself, you can go back and listen to last week's message. Um, It is amazing to us that we're standing here today cooperating with God. It's nothing short of a miracle. What will, this is a question in your outline there, what will will you treat as creation's ultimate will in this battle of the wills? Well, today, 
There would be many situations that arise in a Christian's life and daily experience that tends to get explained as though the ultimate governing force in the human realm is man's free will. I've heard too many Christians pull that out. And this is when you pull that out. Well, you pull it out when the line stops being straight. Right? The line was straight, going toward God. Everything is good, as I understand good to be. It's moving along the agenda of God. And then suddenly, something goes this way. It goes sideways. Some suffering comes into our lives. Some negative event, some tragedy, some affliction of one person and afflicting their will upon another. Some group of people bringing some catastrophe upon another group of people, prolonged, years after years taking place. And we stare at that thing and we pull this card out and we say, well, man has a free will. And I'm not trying to say, hear me carefully, there's a lot of stuff to cover, but I'm not trying to say man's will doesn't matter. But when we begin to explain life ultimately in the hands of somebody's will here, it just tends to be that when things go sideways, we shift our attention from God's purpose and will, and then we begin to stare at human free will. And say, well, that happened in that person's life because somebody chose to do that. Or that person chose that for themselves and they brought that on themselves. And while all those things have a realm of truth in it, there's a louder thing in the conversation with us than your, quote, free will. And this was at the center of some debate in the Reformation. About the time of Martin Luther before... uh, Really, I think it was about the time when he was uh, nailing his theses. A man named Erasmus had already translated the Bible out of the Greek. And he had clarified some things that the Bible taught through that. But later on, Erasmus would go on and write a book on free will. And Martin Luther would respond with a book titled, The Bondage of the Will. He would take to issue the idea that man's will was ever, ever free. It's a pretty edgy book. If you want to get a taste of Martin Luther's personality, uh, you read, read that book, uh, The Bondage of the Will. He's, he, he's, he probably wouldn't be a real comfortable guy to have a conversation with. He was, he was a little edgy. And he takes Erasmus to task over this thought that man has a free will? Really? And here's a thought from him in your outline there. It says, It is in the highest degree wholesome and necessary for a Christian to know whether or not his will has anything to do in matters pertaining to salvation. Indeed, let me tell you that that is the hinge on which our discussion turns. For if I am ignorant of the nature, extent, and limits of what I can and must do with reference to God, I shall be equally ignorant and uncertain of the nature, extent, and limits of what God can and will do in me. Now, if I am ignorant of God's works and power, I am ignorant of God himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship 
praise, give thanks, or serve Him. For I do not know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to Him. That, that little paragraph is worth you spending some time in this week. Right, just, we've got this battle of the two wills taking place. Have you ever stopped to consider, well, I love his choices here, the nature, extent, and limits of these two wills? What is the nature of human will? What's the extent and the limits of human will? Are there, are there any limits? Like when you say free will, we turn it into this ultimate thing, this determinative thing. Are there any limits that God has ordained for human will to have limits? He's got limits for a lot of other stuff. But somehow we've got this theology that when it comes to human free will, God can't touch that. Well, God can't violate your free will. I've heard people say that. God can't. Those are not two good words to put back to back. But, you know, Reformed theology is what makes that laughable. And you're laughing at that because you're a church that's been taught Reformed theology for a long time. But there are churches who grant the idea that the reason that's happening in your life or somebody else's life or this situation in the world is because God can't violate that person's free will. And you've never stopped to think, is there an extent? Is there a limit? What's the nature of the human will? And then bring that same thought to God. What's the nature of God's will? What's the extent and limits of God's will? Now, listen, this is massively important. I realize that we're kind of swimming in the deep end of the pool today. This is massively, massively important. You interacted with this reality all week long. And you're going to interact with it when you leave here today. Right? When, when you see this little phrase here. I do not know how much I should attribute to myself. And how much to him. You live in that phrase every day of your life. It touches your hope every day of your life. It makes Romans chapter 8 weigh two ounces or two tons. Every day of your life. Because if your God can only be as big as your unlimited free will lets him be. You have a miserable life on your hands for the rest of your days on this earth. Because God can't step in and do God-like stuff in your world. Because his world awaits you giving him permission. To do so many things. That's a laborious place to be. You will be staring over your shoulder at yourself in the rearview mirror constantly trying to figure out what have I or have I not done that's going to let God turn my future into whatever it's going to be. Right now you may have, ultimately you may be able to say, well, Revelation 21. Yeah, I know somehow we'll land there. But what about, what about that first or second turn there? You, you in control of that? Oh, no, 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 somehow God will get you to Revelation 21, but you know all the stuff on this dark line, that's, that's your will, right? That's your choices. That's what you have created by exercising your will. Right? Or is there an ultimate greater will? Listen, I hope you taste the, the sense of hopelessness that this introduces if somehow the good of your life is in your own hands determinatively 
rather than the God who has mercy. And when you ponder, I started to just do this whole message out of one point, um, and I shifted the point, but let me just make that one point. The Bible clearly teaches something that the reformers labeled total depravity. The idea that every dimension of us, every aspect of us was touched by sin in the fall. Every aspect of it, our will included. So to pick our will up and treat it like it has some kind of amazing potential in and of itself is to ignore that reality. That the Bible describes all of us, including our will, as dead, not alive, not a little bit alive, not a whimpering heartbeat, darkened, not a, not a puttering flame in the superdome in the, in the corner, but it's still a little bit of a candle. No, no, no. Dark. Totally dark. Enslaved. Not part-time enslaved, not enslaved on the weekends. Enslaved. All the time. Enslaved. Unwilling and unable is how the Bible describes us. Now listen, if you don't own these words, these are good words. If you don't own these words, you think you're willing and you think you're able. You just need a chance. Just need a cheery message from God to give you a chance. And you will because you're able. Well, you know, that's not what Romans chapter 8 says. It's not what many things in Scripture say. But here's just a taste. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, how did anybody get to be according to the Spirit? How did that happen? Because of rebirth, right? We looked at that last week. Because they were born again. But when we're born again, Rome, uh, John chapter 1 says, it is not the birth of blood or of the flesh or of the will of man. But you were born of God. So how did you become spiritual? How did you get that second dimension? By God and his will, not by yours. To set... The mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not, might not. Cannot. That's the condition of the will of man apart from the mercy of God. It will not. It doesn't want to. And it won't. That's a real problem. And if you let that be a problem, the work of God's grace will take on monumental proportions and you will shift your trust towards the God who's at work in your life away from your trust in you. That's a wonderful thing to learn. All right, let me make a clear statement here so nobody walks away saying, you know what Keith said Sunday? Here's a clear statement, and I called it in your outline, a clear statement. (laughs) I am going to place God's will at the center of my theology and the universe and say that God will fully and completely accomplish everything according to his will. And that will will be unthwarted by any other will, power, or personality. However, this does not mean that human choices are meaningless or inconsequential. Because that's not how the system of the Bible treats them. And how these two realities interact and resolve is a mystery to me. 
Thus, I treat God's will as ultimate and my will as meaningful, which calls forth biblical hope and biblical responsibility. And so whatever you're going to hear me say today, make sure you understand I did say that. <laughs> That's right, in my clear statement. <laughs> just in case, you know, when you just put statement there, it could be unclear. But when you say clear statement, it's clear. Listen, what's never going to happen, you're not going to get to the, the Revelation 21, Revelation 22 moment, and you know, God's not going to be sitting at a press conference after this whole thing's over like a coach, scratching his head going, you know, I don't know. The wheels just came off in the third quarter. Uh, I don't, I don't know what happened. We're going to have to go back and watch some game film just to see what happened. You, you do understand when you read about the purpose of God in Scripture, does it sound that way to you? Or does it sound like when God gets to the end, he will be able to say, everything I said I would do from the foundations of the world, I did. Everything was accomplished. Turn the lights off, we're done. That's what it's going to feel like at that press conference. Right? And so where do we get this thought? Right? There's, this, there's this purpose of God traveling with us. Right? This little black line it is a purpose of God. And it goes through meanders and it, and it shifts in the categories that make it hard to follow sometimes. But there is a purpose of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in an amazing, mind-blowing, and outside of our pay grade. To be thinking that God was at work in your life before you had a life. Now, I don't get that. Right? I live in time. Which, by the way, time's not inconsequential. However, God's Revelation 21 moment was set in place in the foundations of the world. So then does it matter if time unfolds that? Well, you know, that's not my department, right? I just live in time. God's the one who stands outside those things and said that. But according to this verse, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And all these benefits came to us before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Well, there's so much here. Maybe I shouldn't have put any other verses but this one in our conversation today. Right? I know you and I are working out our salvation, right? We're working out our lives. But from the foundation of the world, God has purposed that you would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to, here it is. The purpose of his will. All right, there's something out there called that. Somewhere, you don't see it, you do this morning, but somewhere out there, there's a little black line called the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished Upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. So that little black line is a little hard to understand. It's mysterious to us. Hold that word mystery in mind for a second. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan. Right? God had a plan. God's not reacting to history, He's got a plan. For the fullness of time. 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is not random. We're not living in random history. From the foundations of the world, God has a plan that in the fullness of time, Jesus shows up in exactly the right moment. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Right? How did you and I obtain anything? We have all these incredible things. How did we obtain that? Because we were predestined to do so. Right? Do, you, do you hear the applause of human will yet? It's big, isn't it? It's deafening. This is just mysterious. Because I know all of us are like, well, come on. It's, it's got to matter somehow that we did or didn't. It does matter. It's just, you just don't make the headlines. It's just not ultimate. Ultimately, this is what matters. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all these things according to the counsel of his will. So God is at work, is he not? According to this passage, from the foundations of the world, that little black line moving all over the place, hard to read, hard to understand. But God says, I have a purpose and I am navigating the course of human history through that purpose. Not just ultimately, but every day, every moment I'm involved. So this purpose, if you will, it touches millenniums, centuries, decades, days, moments, the hairs on your head, details. It doesn't do you any good traveling through this world to believe in a God who is, his sovereign will works in the millenniums, the thousands of generations of years, but it doesn't show up in your moments. That doesn't do you any good. And that's not how the scriptures present it to you. It shows up in your moments and saying, hey, did you know this moment right here was part of Revelation 21 plan? Did you know that? God has a purpose and he is fulfilling it. So in this passage, human will doesn't make its debut. It doesn't get applauded. It doesn't get praised. We don't stand in amazement over the wise choices that human beings have made to inherit these things. We get to stand at the foot of God and go, wow. Even if we go, wow, God, I don't get this. We still are staring at him at the end of the day. But what about, all right, now turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. What about when things go bad? They look like they're off course, right? This line has turned in a direction that doesn't make any sense. And now how do you explain that? Well, what I hear most people doing is they're going to explain that by saying, well, God gave you a free will. You know, fill in the rest of that. And you made stupid choices. And so you're living a stupid life because you make stupid choices. Or you married somebody that makes stupid choices. Or you work for somebody that makes stupid choices. And so basically life is really hard because of, you know, your will. And so when, you, when that's in the conversation, and it is in the conversation, it's not inconsequential. But if you're not careful, you'll let that be really, really weighty. And when you do that, Romans 8.28 begins to weigh two ounces. Because in reality, you know the real determiner of the future is you and that person you're married to and that boss that's your boss, right? That's, that's how life really feels, isn't it? 
hopeless. This is never going to turn out good. Because we have put the emphasis on human will. Well, how does God explain this? Well, interesting, Romans 8. Romans 8 through Romans 11 is some of the hardest passages to move through. If you've got a Bible, you need to take this out. So you need to look at something. Maybe you can look at it on the screen. But uh, I want you to be able to know where it is in your Bible. Because you need to go back and look at these things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to race you through a very weighty set of scriptures here. I just want you to see some of the highlights of why this even comes up. All right, so here's why Romans 8 gives way to Romans 9, 10, and 11. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings... Ah, that's a squiggle in the line right there, right? We're no longer having a straight line. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, that's mysterious. For the creation waits with eager longing. Waiting. Heck, that could be a squiggle too. How many of y'all think that waiting is a squiggle in the line? I do. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Pay attention to the vocabulary words here. Not willingly, there's that will thing, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's a lot of squiggly lines right there. All right, did you pick up on these words? There's the word suffering. There's pain. There's pain like no other pain. For what I understand, unless you've had kidney stones. How many of you guys would say kidney stones are worse than childbirth? How many of you ladies would say that because you're the only ones qualified to speak on this matter? I've heard, right? All right, so the most ultimate of pains is mentioned here. Life is corrupted. Who can think of anything coming into your future that's good when, when the whole system's corrupted, man? People are corrupt. People want their own thing. There's, it's just a problem. And then there's this groaning. At some point, life for you can feel like groaning. Long periods of unresolved, not taking a turn. The black line seems to be headed in the wrong direction. Never taking its turn toward home. And we're just sitting in this thing under the weight of something that's making us groan. And then that word futility sets in. How many know what it's like for life to start feeling futile? Like it doesn't matter. You're just some little piece in a giant cog. And things are moving and things are happening and life is, you know, just let, let people near and dear to you die. And you get a fresh meaning for the word futility. Because you just start recognizing, what's the point? Come to this world, we live a few years and then we die. You have children and they live a few years and then they die. And they go through this suffering and pain along the way. What? Right, futility is in our world. This, this is the stuff that this is made of. So when this begins to happen, you want to pull out your free will card, right? Say, well, how do you explain this? But even in this passage, the creator himself has subjected the world to futility. Whose will is doing this? The will of the creator is at work doing this. 
And even that reveals some greater purpose. This is when we pull out Romans chapter 8 verse 28, right? Which is in Romans chapter 8. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Why are we having this verse available to us? Because sometimes life gets, quote, off course. And I need an explanation for it. And the explanation in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, isn't, well, idiot, you have a free will. You did a stupid thing. Uh, Romans 8, 28 says this, We know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him, to those who are called according to his black line purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Okay, now I get an awareness Why is this black line headed south? Well, because God's at work in it. He's got a purpose in where the black line travels. So that he would be the firstborn among among many brethren. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Right? So this is foundation of the world stuff. And these whom he called... Wait, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified... And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? Now we're in Revelation 21. Now, can you see something here? And I know you want to say, but what about human free will? What about it? It ain't in the verse. I'm sorry. It doesn't make the headlines. It's there somewhere. It's not in the verse. What's in the verse is what God did. That from the foundation of the world, God looked into the existence of all things. Of course, he stands outside of time, so he's everywhere at once. And and he purposed something to exist. And to fulfill a reason for why it existed. And he predestined things and people. And we fast forward into you and I, at some point in our lives, we become aware of this as we travel through time. And God has collected us, called us to himself. And everybody, look at those verses carefully. Everybody that God predestined, he called. Right? So he takes this bucket out and he puts us in this bucket. And everybody that he called, he justified. Is there anybody falling out along the way here? Anybody got called and didn't get justified? Not in that verse. And everybody who he justified, these he also glorified. So everybody that got justified got glorified as well. So Revelation 21 was settled from the foundations of the world, wasn't it? Because God had determined that he is going to accomplish his will and no one gets lost along the way. And Romans 8 installs that thought to a bunch of people who feel childbirth pains and suffering and futility and groaning. Is there any hope? Do we have a future? Yes, you have a future. Because there's this thing called the purpose of God that's working out in you. If you keep reading... Look in verse 31. Well, what then shall we say to these things? If, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Verse 35. These are, these, are, these are holster verses as well. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, I don't know how long the list needed to be to convince us that nothing can. How about human free will? How about if I throw that in there? Oh, well, that's the one thing. So that's going to trump all this. This whole thing's going to get trumped by that. Hmm. Well, then it becomes ultimately determinative, then, doesn't it? And God can't be at work 
to accomplish good and his purpose in all things because you might never get there. He'd like for you to get there, but he just can't seem to pull it off. All right, this is not how Romans 8 sounds. But Romans 8 then raises the question, but you know, it looks like sometimes God's got a purpose that doesn't work. How do you explain that one? And so Paul responds to that idea, but what about Israel? What about them? God chose them. And they were idolatrous. They wandered off constantly. And look at them today. A bunch of religious people who don't even know the Savior. Right? This is what's being said. So you start reading in Romans 9, chapter 6. Right? This is this whole conversation. It starts in Romans 8. But it's not as though, Paul says, the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It just looks like that to you. You misunderstand the mystery of what God's doing. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. God spoke this to Abraham. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or evil, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls Why did this get done? Because God purposed for it to get done. Not because human wills made it possible. But because God purposed it to get done. Where are you going to put your confidence when you're done reading this verse? Jacob, Esau. She was told the older will serve the younger. And as it's written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now what ends up happening is you come to that verse and you get to that line And what preceded it, you forget about and you say, what the heck does that mean? I thought God was loving. What do you mean? He hated Esau? All right, all right. Rewind, because I'm not even going to explain the hating Esau part today. Rewind. Why are we having this conversation? So that God can talk about love and hate? No. We're having this conversation so that God can explain he has a purpose. That has been from the foundation of the world that he is causing all things to work toward that end. And that purpose will not be interrupted by anything. Nothing can separate us from it. And nothing can thwart him accomplishing that purpose. Because he purposes it independent in some mysterious way of man. He's not sitting back going, I hope this Jacob and Esau thing works out. I don't know. I'm really nervous. I'm really nervous, guys. What if they don't choose? Does that sound this way? I like God has absolute confidence. His purpose is going to be fulfilled. Now listen, there, there's a behind the scenes thing going on here that you need to pay attention to. You need to be aware that it's there because you're not going to get a whole lot of explanation about what's going on behind the scenes. But God is explaining some things from a behind the scenes standpoint. Look in verse 15, chapter 9. For... He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. How 
does God fulfill his purpose? By making it dependent upon him, not upon human will. Well, does that mean that our will doesn't matter? No, I already told you in the clear statement. (laughs) Our will matters. It's just not making the headlines in these sections. I think I put Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's a good verse to read the whole Bible with. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. The secret things belong to God. How many of you know that there's some secret things out there? How many know there's some things that God does that he doesn't always explain to us? That God does them for reasons that would only make sense if you had an eternal brain that was omnipotent and all-knowing and None of us have that. It's kind of like you want to talk about circuit overload. We could be asking a question. God, I want, to, I want you to explain to me how this is good. You know, I don't know. The data download just kind of like, poof, that's it. I'm done. You know, this smoke comes off. Uh, Keith asked a dumb question. God answered him. You know, poof. There, there is information that is secret that God doesn't reveal it fully. To us, But you and I are called to live in the here and the now. We travel through time. We make decisions. Our job is not to be sovereign in our will. Our job is to be human wills. To exercise our human will within the revealed will of God. While I recognize there is a secret dimension of God's activity going on. And he kind of lets us in. Right, this is what's going on here in, in Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. Right? Look in Romans 9 verse 27. I think that's what verse I'm going to do. Yep. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Right, so we're already fast forwarded to Isaiah the prophet. He's saying the same thing. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. This is an explanation for why isn't all of Israel, quote, chosen, and it's all working out for them. Well, well, this is why, behind the scenes, God is doing something, and there's only a remnant in them that are going to be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. It's exactly as God planned it, exactly at the right time. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring... We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Are you read that carefully in the context of what this is saying? You want to talk about the battle of wills here? If God had chosen Israel and had put in their hands the responsibility to choose in order to have a future, their future would have been Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what that verse says. They would have exercised their free will over and over and over again, just like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah did. They were free. They were free to run down the paths of sin as far as they could possibly go because that's what enslavement does to your will. And so Sodom and Gomorrah is a poster child for human free will where it doesn't pursue righteousness. As a matter of fact, when righteousness shows up at its door, it rapes it. That's how much sense righteousness makes to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, if I hadn't done something to Israel, they'd be another chapter in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because of their will, 
Oh, because of God's. Isaiah says, because of God's. Go down to chapter 10, verse 19. It says, but I ask, did, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. All right, this, this is an explanation for the squiggly line. Why the squiggle? Why the unfaithfulness of Israel? Why the looking away from God? God says, because I was doing something in their looking away. All right, when you and I look at the looking away, doesn't it look like that's the one thing that's not supposed to happen? That's bad. That's not supposed to happen that way. They're supposed to worship God all their existence. God says, part of my squiggly line. Part of my purpose. But if this looks wrong. <laughs> right? I mean, I couldn't stand up here and preach a message to you and say, hey guys, this week let's all squiggle. And, uh, I don't know, have an affair. Uh, don't read your Bibles this week. Just go off in unfaithfulness. Right? No one ever preaches that. But when it happens, God says, hey, I was working in that. Verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. You want to get weird here? Let's get mysterious. I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. What does that tell you about the two wills involved here? Human will doesn't seek God. Yet those who don't seek find him. Can you explain that? You're not looking for God, but you find him. Must be something God is doing that causes that to happen. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Those two words, hang them on your free will sign. Free will, both disobedient and contrary. (laughs) Doesn't sound real free. Chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, right? Foundation of the world. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time. So too what? Well, I am keeping people today too. There is a remnant chosen by grace. What makes this remnant faithful? What makes this remnant belong to God? Human will? Chosen by men. It could have said that. could have easily said that. Chosen by grace. For if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Who has been doing the keeping of those who are called the remnant? God has been doing the keeping. Listen, this is a long argument. We started in Romans chapter 8. When it looks like the wheels have come off and suffering has come in. 
And this is where we land, right? One more, couple more verses here. Chapter 11, verse 11. So, this is another behind the scenes moment. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. In verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Who knew all this was going on behind the scenes? Are you kidding me? Just looked like a bunch of people just prone to idolatry. And they wandered away and they rejected the Messiah. Then the, That's all we know until this mystery gets revealed and God pulls back the mystery of what he was doing. Every moment of this plot line of his purpose steering itself through human history, it looks like, well, how do you explain that line right there? How did that one go so far south? There's no way God was in that. And he says, um, it was to save the Gentiles. Really? That's why that happened? And how many know God doesn't always explain all these things to us? Now, when you get to this, into this section, I think Paul is, uh, he's out of breath. He is, he is amazed, awed, right? You get to chapter 11, verse 23, and he just whew, goes, oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Right? This is the conclusion of what he started in chapter 8. To say, this is how God is at work in the squiggly lines of life. Everything has an explanation. It fully accomplishes God's purpose in this world. Even when you and I don't get it and we're left scratching our heads. And now walk with me through this last little self-quiz here before we pray. So you and I have an intellectual dilemma on our hands in this battle of the wills. The Bible clearly depicts a God who has a purpose. Agree or disagree? You got to own some of this, all right? Do you believe God has a purpose or is history randomly unfolding? The Bible clearly depicts a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and always working to bring his purpose to pass. Life sometimes contains moments events and seasons that simply don't fit any available definition that we have for using the word good. You think about that one carefully for a moment? Because these are the moments when we unplug from God, when we challenge God, when we drift from God, because somehow the line has moved in a direction that we can't explain. I can't explain this. I cannot call it good. And by the way, most of what we end up learning to call good is not because the event itself was good. So it's kind of confusing to call everything good. What you're really calling good is the God who is at work in all things. That's good. But 
tragic death, suffering, pain. That was not good in and of itself. It's only when redemption gets involved in it that it becomes something good. So your pain, sometimes you're not going to be able to stare at it and go, oh, that's good. That's a good one right there. When life appears bad, how do you explain it? Do I attempt to rescue God from appearing unloving, uncaring, or in any way associated with evil or suffering by shifting the emphasis to human free will? Why is this happening in my life? This can't be good. Well, so-and-so has a free will, man. You've given counsel like that, haven't you? And I have too. That's not the ultimate reason for anything. It's a consequential explanation for things. It's not an ultimate reason for anything. Right? Travel with me to the worst moment in human history. The Son of God is on the cross. And the weight of humanity's sin is resting upon him. And the cry from the cross... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You standing at the foot of the cross and going, oh, that's good, that's good. That's a good thing going on right there. Can you possibly explain without the secret information how that's a good thing? It's God. Come in the form of a human being rejected by humanity under a corrupt system that found him guilty through a mock trial and people like the mafia put him to death. That's what was going on in that day. And you know it. You know the corruption in the system in Jerusalem. And the movers and the shakers, the mafia bosses, took him out. It was a hit. And the Son of God, who you thought was the One to rescue and make everything right and sit on the throne of David. And everything you understood to be good is not happening when he cries out like God himself has forsaken him. Listen, without the secret information, you can't call that good. You just get to cheat. That's why you can call that good. You sing these songs and we celebrate that because you you cheated. You, You cheated... Because you know what Acts chapter 4 says. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Apart from that secret information you can't call the crucifixion of the Son of God good. And there are moments in your life where your life goes this way. And you, it feels to you like, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? How can this possibly be good? But the Bible lets you in on secret information. It tells you that God has ordained things for a purpose. That line goes where it goes because God is on purpose. And be careful. Eric, you can come back up here. Be careful. We are so natural minded. We don't function with secret information. Disciples walk with Jesus one day. You remember they walked by the blind guy and they saw a blind guy. 
Remember that question to him? No secret information, just natural. Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? Uh, Really? That's the only choices? What's going on in this guy's world is because he blew it, human free will, or his parents blew it, human free will. But somebody did something stupid, and this guy's blind as a result. That's their theology. And Jesus says, neither. This exists for the glory of God. Remember Job's friends were doing the same thing to him? All right, Job's friends show up. And again, you and I, we can criticize Job's friends because we have a cheat sheet. We have secret information. They didn't have that. They're staring at his life going, dude, this is bad. If something bad happens, you must have done something really stupid. <laughs> you know, they pull out the human free will card. Somebody made a bad choice. Look at what it got you, Job. I hope you learned your lesson and you'll never do that again. Whatever it was, I hope you never do that again. So you and I know that's ridiculous theology. Because the secret information got revealed to us. And there's a conversation in heaven in which God is showing forth his glory through his servant, Job. All right, you and I don't always get access to the secret information. And we're going to find ourselves in places where this doesn't look good. This cannot be God. Right, here's my last thought in your little checkbox there. I understand that God's will, his purpose, interacts with corruption, evil, sin, and human choices in a mysterious way. While still fully accomplishing his will and his purpose. Even when I cannot see his great purpose in a piece of my life or in this momentary affliction that I'm staring at. Let's stand up together. Lord, we walked in here today trying to find some ballast in our ship with Romans 8, 28. Thought that God could somehow be working in everything. But Lord, sometimes... That verse just doesn't have any weight to it. Because in the battle of wills, Lord, we think it's our wills that ultimately are determined. Or somebody else's will. And Lord, somehow your will is so far removed. God, we have stared into your word this morning. We've seen what the reformers were eager to see. And we have seen a Bible that features a God who has a purpose that started from the foundation of the world and it's going to land at a particular moment exactly as you planned with a particular audience exactly as you planned for an eternity that you promised exactly as you planned. Or which means every turn and squiggle of the lines of our lives You have a purpose in them. 
Lord, some of us here this morning just really, really need to hear that. Because we came here this morning at the beginning of Romans 8, not at Romans 11. We came with a life that feels like suffering and pain. It feels corrupt and broken and nothing seems to go right. It feels futile and empty. And we are groaning, groaning under the weight of the season that we've been in or the brokenness that we keep bumping into or the sense that this life of mine has taken a turn for the worse. I don't see how it can ever recover. Until we travel through the rest of Romans 8 and Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11. And we stand in praise of you at a mind of God full of secret perfection who works all things according to the purpose of your will. Lord, like Job, sometimes we have spoken too fast. We had heard of Romans 8, 28, but Lord, hopefully help us that we would see you and see Romans 8, verse 28. Lord, I pray for sight right now in this room. The mystery of the God who does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. He grants eyes that see and ears that hear. Lord, and this morning we need to hear, Lord, what's your answer for the groaning of our lives? What's your answer for this season of suffering? Lord, what's your answer for this severe turn with all of its pain, all of its confusion? Lord, bring near to us this awareness that you have a purpose every millennium and century and decade and day you have a purpose that you are working out. Our lives are not random. They're not out of control. They're not subject to powers, even my own powers or the devil's powers or anybody else's powers. Lord, This morning we draw near to the God who has a purpose, who's at work in every moment. God, would you make this real to us? God, this can't weigh two ounces. It's got to weigh two tons. Our ship gets flipped over when this weighs two ounces. It's got to be pronounced in our lives. It's got to be powerful. Spirit of God. Would you take these notes into our hearts? Would you take these passages into our hearts? Would you take us deeper into this reality? For the truth is, God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his will. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.